You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. I want to tell you the story of Maureen O'Connor. Maureen was raised one of 13 children in a poor Roman Catholic family. She, after graduating from college herself, worked as a Catholic school teacher, and within only three years of having graduated from college, was elected to the city council of San Diego during which time and under such opportunities, a few years later, she had met and eventually married Robert O. Peterson. Mr. Peterson was the founder of the Jack in the Box fast food chain. Uh, With the support of her political friends from being in City Council of San Diego, supporting her and encouraging her, she eventually became the mayor of San Diego from 1986 to 1992. Sadly, a few years later, her husband, died in 1994 of leukemia. The problem was that Maureen O'Connor had a serious gambling addiction. Perhaps the disbelief of many of you even sitting here this morning hearing this, from 2000 to 2008, her gambling activity exceeded $1 billion with the net losses of around $13 million. Uh, from a one-time net worth herself of having 40 to $50 million of personal assets, thanks largely to her husband's will to her, she actually went to having nothing. Where her debts to the casinos were so great, she eventually committed a crime. And that crime being, she had her husband's foundation, of which she was a leader of, give her loans so that then she could take that money and start paying off all of her debts of the casinos. Or so she said she would do, only to then gamble more away. She later confessed in court to taking over $2 million from her husband's charitable foundation, only to blow it on video poker. The tragic story of Maureen O'Connor is but one of countless stories. You perhaps know them and perhaps even have identified this in your own practice. Gambling is certainly an addiction for people that can affect them, if not ruin them. But the reality is that we see that there is a common theme here. From Maureen O'Connor to Harry Kavas, who lost more than $20 million in one bet, even the famed and retired basketball player Charles Barkley, who lost $2.5 million on a single game of blackjack, the losses are common and stories are countless. But what if we were not talking about money? What if we were talking about your life? Because the reality is, now all of us have the same amount of money. And so maybe even these dollar amounts hit you differently than they would other people, based upon how much personal money they have. But everybody has One life, 
And what if you were not gambling with your money, but you were gambling with your life? What if instead of putting all your money on a red or a black or a number or a hand, you put your life on the teachings of another? And the consequence is jackpot, eternity of love and acceptance by God, or bankruptcy with debts that are only going to be paid by spending an eternity in hell. And here's the thing, friends. Everyone plays. No one sits out this round. No one says, thank you, but no thank you. No one gets a pass. Everyone is in. And how you play that hand determines what you win or lose. Well, that's exactly what we see in the book of Galatians chapter 6, and I want you to turn there if you've not done so already. We're working our way through and have done so, the book of Galatians. We come to the last text this morning in the book, but we have not run out of content that explains the urgency of this conversation and what's on the line. Now, for those of you who have been with us maybe just for the first time this morning or for the first time several months ago, you perhaps have not been with us the entire time. On Sunday, February 5th, we embarked on this journey through the book of Galatians. We have spent 24 Sundays since then mining through this book together. And we by no means have gotten all there is to get out of this book. And we're not going to even be done today. Don't panic, it won't be a second lap, but I can assure you a second lap would still expose so much more that we left in the first lap. But next Sunday, what we'll do is we'll actually put it all together. Like a puzzle we've been staring at the pieces, we'll put it all together and sit back and look at the big picture in one Sunday, next Sunday, putting all of Galatians together in a single sermon. But then after that, for the following three Sundays after that, we'll have what I will refer to as the Galatians after party. Some of you have maybe gone to events where you learned later that there was an after party. There was the party after the party, and you didn't get invited. Well, this one you're invited to. The Galatians after party is an opportunity for us to kind of go back to Galatians, but now to take a look at some specific teachings that have been laced throughout the book of Galatians, like the teaching of false teachers and false teaching. Uh, The teaching of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, something highly debated and disputed even amongst our city of Miami, let alone around the world, or the doctrine of the church. We'll look at those together in the coming weeks in the Galatians after party. But this morning, we want to see that Paul summarizes here in Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18, what these spiritual bookies, if you will, that he's up against are peddling what they're offering people to bet their life on. And what we're wanting to see is not only what the Galatians will do, but also what you and I will do today. Because the conversation is no less relevant as it was back then. Galatians chapter 6, verse 11 to the end. Follow along with me, or at least listen as I read to you. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 
But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let me, if I can, summarize not only Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18, but Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18 is summarizing really all of Galatians as Paul kind of brings us back sort of to the main theme of this. Here's sort of the main point we need to recognize. Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone because of his grace alone is the only hope you have for God's forgiveness of your sins and hope of eternal life. You see it. Let me say it again. Faith alone, not faith plus works. In Jesus Christ alone, not Jesus Christ plus your family, plus your friends, plus your knowledge. Only Christ alone can save you. No other means by which you can be forgiven because of his grace alone. Not because you have done enough or you promised to do more. Only his grace is the only hope you have for God's forgiveness of your sins and hope of eternal life. You'll look back at verse 11, see what Paul says there. He says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, you're like, what's happening here? It's like, Paul, did he just like you know, kind of increase the font of his writing? Like he kind of just got large. He was like writing responsibly and then he started writing recklessly. No, this is actually a, perhaps a new revelation for some of you. Don't be disoriented by some of this because so many of you are new to the Bible and new to Christianity. But this might surprise a number of you. Paul actually did not write with his own hand most of the letters that are assigned to his writing, his teaching. You're like, okay, so is it not Paul or is it Paul? Oh, it is Paul, but Paul dictated them to what you could refer to as a, a secretary, somebody who would write them, but Paul would often at the end of his letter, if you will take the pen, so to speak, from his secretary and go, let me sign off on this. Let me make sure they understand this is coming from me and give you examples of this. You can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 21. He says at the very end, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 18, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. He's like, everything you have heard, everything you have read, it is from me. Uh, he's basically saying here in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, with emphasis, don't miss what I'm saying here. So what is it that Paul is saying here? Well, I've taken the liberty to take these verses, verses 12 through the end, and really kind of pose them in three questions because here would be the mistake numbers of you could make this morning. It'd be understandable, but it would be a mistake to make. And that is to think you're reading a historical writing with no relevant, relevant application to you today. 
That would be a mistake. So to not make that mistake, let me help you by turning what Paul's teachings are here into three reflection questions. Three reflection questions. Number one, am I surrendered to Christ? Am I surrendered to Christ? Go back to verse 12. Look at what he says. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Now, okay, stop right there. He's talking about a group of people he's been writing about and on and off for the last six chapters and comes up in other places. They're what's known in the, in the history of Christianity as Judaizers. Well, who are Judaizers? Well, you probably can hear some of the description in the very title they're given. They're basically Jewish people ethnically who have stated that they've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but have not given up also putting their hope in their obedience to the law. And furthermore, and perversely, telling anybody else who wants to become accepted by God, forgiven by God, loved by God, that they need Jesus plus the good work of circumcision. And here's the thing. They even have the Bible to support this. They would quote Acts chapter 17 where it says that. Except as we've seen in previous months, they're twisting the Scripture leaving out what God said earlier in Acts 15, and, or not Acts, but in the book of Genesis, rather. Not just in Genesis 17, but in Genesis 15 and Genesis 12 of what God said that those things are simply a sign of, not securing. These Judaizers, in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, Luke writes the following about them. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Acts 15, verse 1. You can look it up for yourself. It says that right there. They're saying, unless you're circumcised, now you can realize this is significant because if you're not Jewish ethnically, typically at that time, you weren't circumcised. And right now, some of you are like, I have never heard circumcision said this much in publicly in my entire life. Well, welcome to the reading of the Bible. Because this was not just sort of an ethnic definer, it was a religious declaration, or it used to be at least, a declaration of who was believed to be a follower of Yahweh and who was not. Now, before we throw the Judaizers under the bus, and, and I want to say out, at the outset, we will, I want you to see how in verse 12 and 13 becomes strangely familiar to many of us because it identifies their motives are also tempting for us as well. Because if you go back to verse 12, look at the rest of the verse. It says, why do they want to force people to be circumcised? It says in the rest of verse 12, in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Verse 13, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Three temptations you need to be aware of that they were not. Number one. Be aware of the temptation to please others. Like, oh, wow, it turns out to be amazingly relevant. <laughs> Welcome to the Bible, friends. To please others. That's exactly what's being said here in the text, to make a good showing in the flesh. This is to make a good impression on others. They wanted to impress people by what they were teaching so that other people would sort of affirm them and approve of them. That was their motive. The second temptation to be aware of is to avoid rejection or persecution. 
Look back at the text. It says, in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Friends, what's happening here is the Judaizers are trying to cover their bases. They're trying to say, how do we take what this group believes and what this group believes and get both groups to accept us? They want circumcision. They want Jesus. We say yes to both. Is that temptation any less applicable than for us today? We want justice. We want love. We say yes to both. But we want to redefine it and selectively apply it where it seemingly gives us the biggest audience of respect and appreciation. The last thing we want is to be rejected. And the last thing we want, even worse, to be rejected is to be persecuted. Now, by comparison of other brothers and sisters in the Lord today in other parts of the world, I would argue that most of us have not known persecution a day in our life. Not like we're about to see Paul references in passing in verse 17. But for the point of contrast of Paul to the Judaizers, as it says there in verse 12, in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Here's what this is alluding to. (laughs) Being a follower of Christ and Christ alone is costly, is costly. And I want to just be very clear for those of you who are not in Christ. If it's not enough for Christ to accept you, for God to love you, to pardon you, but you want that, plus the respect of your coworkers, the affirmation of your superiors, the seemingly civil respect of your neighbors, the affirmation of your family. Oh, friends, you need to understand that's not how the gospel works. The gospel bids all men to come to him and die to themselves and live for Christ. And I think too often today, there's so many Judaizer-like preaching going on in pulpits that says, hey, you can have your Jesus and your personal worldly respect too. I think Paul's pretty clearly saying, hey, come be a fool for Christ. Join the family. Oh, that's, that's a bit, you know, proud. That's a bit relationally insensitive. He's like, no, it's a bit Christian is what it is. And I think it's helpful in our sort of modern-day 21st century Western sensibilities to have that audit brought in. But notice the third temptation, not only to please others or to avoid rejection or persecution, but also to boast in your accomplishments. Here's what's so bizarre about this text in verse 13. It says, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. You're like, well, that's weird. I thought that was the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. This is super bizarre. They're basically saying, we're going back bragging about how much circumcisions we accomplished. It's like an Amway for the law, kind of building up this sort of pyramid scheme or something. Here, by the way, if you do Amway, I'm sorry. That was not appropriate. Just freestyle like that. But you get the idea. This sense of like, hey, we have, we have quotas to meet. We have numbers to cite. We have followers. And this is honestly a temptation even true in even churches today. Churches will often be tempted to find their temptation in boasting in their accomplishments. They love to cite their numbers. All under the banner of some phrase, oh, to the glory of God. Hmm, Really? Because I feel like that was just like lip service to really what was the glory of you and your giftedness. The Judaizers, they bragged on their persuasiveness. They they could go back and say, look how many followers we have to this teaching. We should be aware of this temptation. It's not only true for them, it's also true for us. 
The legalists knew the offense of the cross would be softened if they openly proclaimed justification by faith, yes, and works, circumcision. Listen to me, very importantly, do not forget this. Jesus does not want your body. Jesus wants your life. Jesus does not want your body. Jesus wants your life. False teachers offer a religion that mainly focuses on externals and behavior rather than the internal change of your heart, your motives, your character, the very organ that drives you, the very motives that motivate you, that wake you up in the morning and put you to bed at night. Legalism, in the end, will not deliver. It'll be short-term self-improvement, sense of self-righteousness, and justifiable condemnation of others who are seemingly not living up to where you are. But in the end, it is a false savior that will not deliver hope, peace, joy. It robs you. It promises you, but it never delivers. We see a religion based on externals and behavior is a salvation that cannot deliver ever what it promises. And Paul says, I want you to recognize that, which is why we ask this question, am I surrendered to Christ I put my hope and my hope in him. Second question for reflection, am I sold out to Christ? Am I sold out to Christ? Look at verse 14 and 15. He says, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is a passage of ironic contrasts, and I don't want you to miss it, because I realize most of you sitting this morning, this is the first time you've read this text maybe ever, or at least in a long time. And so then a matter of like four seconds it took me to read that, you maybe missed it. So let me just slow the tape down and point back to it so you can see the ironic contrasts. For the Judaizers, the cross was an object of shame, but for Paul, it was an object of glorying. For the Judaizers, they gloried in the flesh, what they accomplished. For Paul, he gloried in the Savior and what he accomplished. Paul looked at the world as if it were on a cross, but the world looked at Paul as if he were on a cross. So who's on the cross in your life? That's what I want to know. Who's on the cross in your life? When people see you, what do they see? Paul was not trying to run from being a fool. In fact, he embraced being a fool for Christ. This is why he says, if you'll just look from Galatians chapter 6 to Galatians chapter 2, so you're almost there, go to Galatians chapter 2, look at verse 20, a theme text for the whole book. I love this text, good one to memorize, hint, hint. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can we have a candid conversation about the world? What's it going to offer you? Money? Power? Pleasure? Beauty, success, 
popularity, intelligence, possessions, health, strength, religious rituals, nothing satisfies that the world offers. Not eventually. Honestly, maybe initially, but not ultimately. And the reality is, some of you know that. That's actually why you're here this morning. Because you've tasted and you've seen that the world is not good. And you've heard and now you want to see if you taste and see that the Lord is good. And through whatever means God has brought you here this morning to find out for yourself firsthand, has the God I've heard of, maybe even had a conversation with, does he actually deliver on what he promises? Because you, like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, have been in the world long enough to know vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. Paul says, I know that. He tells the Galatians, you know that. And I stand here today before you this morning in Miami in 2023 telling you the exact same thing. The problem was the Judaizers said, pick up Jesus, but don't let go of the world. Keep both in both hands. And Paul says, I let go of the world and I only want Christ. Now I see the Son of God crucified for me. What does the world think of me? Or what does the world do to me? It does not matter to me. Yet let me speak candidly to many of us who are Christians. And let me say this at the outset to acknowledge as we have this candid conversation with others of, who are here who are not Christians to hear this conversation between Christians. We are tempted to go back to the world in the same way that Christine was tempted to go back to her gambling. Christine won, or so she thought. She got a huge payout, but within six months, it was all gone, mostly on more gambling. She knew it was wrong, and yet she kept going back to it. She says, quote, I kept chasing that feeling of the huge win. In 2004, I started a business that actually had financial success. I had so much money that I thought I'd never run out, but eventually I couldn't even come up with the postage to ship a package. I started selling stolen goods to cover my losses and eventually ended up in prison on mail fraud charge. I think what we Christians have to acknowledge is some of us still deal with some addictions from our time before Christ. Addictions and behaviors that we've acted in that we would believe and really truly understand that Christ has forgiven us because we're not saved by our good works, but by his credited to us, his righteousness in place of our unrighteousness, the, the great substitutionary atonement, and yet how we're tempted to go back 
Addictions, by definition, are defined as a chronic, relapsing disorder characterized by compulsive decisions despite adverse consequences. How many of you have even spoken to me privately and to each other personally about the addictions that you were turned back to? Oh, how pornography ravages so many of our homes and our hearts. Oh, how gossip is so tempting with its information, its little morsels of insight. Oh, how much alcohol becomes something that under the banner of liberty we can claim that we can do as long as we're not drunk and yet we cannot imagine a day without it. But we cite it's okay because we're simply saying, well, I'm doing so responsibly. These addictions can become so strong that even brain circuits involving reward, stress, and self-control are changed. Sin easily creates these addictions with the promise of pleasure and payout, payout rather, but for a time it might be true, but in the end it never is. Let me just give you a practical exercise for examination. By no means a righteous one, but just simply one that will kind of begin to like test drive this in your life. What is it, no matter who you are, Christian or not, what is it in your life that you're saying, I can't imagine my day without? There it is. What is it that you can't imagine that if you didn't have, that you just couldn't find rest or pleasure or relief? That You might even have migraines. Perhaps it's coffee. Perhaps it's Coke. Coca-Cola. Perhaps others of you, it's social media. You just cannot imagine starting your day without opening up Instagram. Checking your likes and your affirmations, your shared. Staying relevant in information on Facebook pages. Some of you are like, don't even know what that app even is. You get the point. What has mastery over you? What is it? Many of you might be more of a slave than you recognize Your only master should be Jesus Christ. I want to be able to say, and I hope you do as well, Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I want to be clear. There are many good gifts God gives that you can love and appreciate. Be they relationships be the resources that he gives. I'm not saying you should somehow deny all those things and take up some ascetic vow that you sort of live like monkery as if that's somehow a higher level of spirituality. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Paul's perspective is that the world and all that it offered was dead to him. He could care nothing about it. He he ate in the same markets as everybody else. He walked in the same roads as everybody else. He was a a part of the same government as everybody else. He was a citizen of the same Rome Pine as everybody else, but he had a different perspective. And my question is, friend, living in Miami, is that your perspective if you're a Christian? Are you here but not here? Are you appreciating but not loving? Are you a citizen of here, but also a citizen of there as a sojourner waiting for the return of the Lord or for him to take you home? Look at what Paul says in verse 15. He says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What's he talking about here? Circumcision not counting for nothing means I do not feel inferior to anyone. (laughs) I'm not worried what you think about me. 
doesn't mean I'm a jerk. doesn't mean I'm sort of like proud. It just means I, I'm just not concerned. I'm not driven by that. I don't have to worry what I have done or not done to gain your pleasure and acceptance of me. But then he goes on to say, nor uncircumcision, which means I don't, feel insu- I don't feel superior to anyone. In the context of Galatians, there are those who are like, oh, I got it. And those are like, no, I don't think you got it. And like, well, I get it and you don't. And those are like, well, I get it and you don't. And they would take pride in the fact that they had been circumcised or pride in the fact that they had not been circumcised, both to mouthfind themselves to be superior over the other. And Paul's like, none of that matters. You need to understand this, friends. The gospel gives you a whole new self-image and a whole new way of relating to everyone. And the challenge for a lot of Christians is you keep going back to the worldly self-image. You find your self-worth, if you will, in your body. And Miami loves, loves to promote the body. Men and women. Or you find in your possessions. Friend, please, be it your body or be it your possessions, those things are here today, gone tomorrow. I'm not saying you can't appreciate them and use them as good stewards. By no means am I not saying you can't. What I'm just saying is those things are just of no worth to you. They're not of ultimate value to you. They're just simply means to an end to live for the Lord. And you don't want anything from anybody because you have all that you need in Christ. For those who are not in Christ, come to Christ to be forgiven and free. Oh, to be free. I was just having a conversation with some people this past week and just said, as bizarre as this might sound, so don't be concerned. It won't sound concerning. Uh, I'm okay to die. I'm okay to die. Like today. Like now. That would probably be traumatic for the rest of you. Not wanting that, of course, but... Paul says in Philippians 2, absent from the body, present with the Lord. No more suffering, no more pain, no more sorrow. But, but what about your wife? What about your kids? What about this new daughter-in-law that you declare your favorite? What, what, what about these people? Don't you have responsibility? I've provided for them as best as I can. I've taught them. I, my wife, I tell my wife all the time, I'm better dead than alive to her financially because she'll cash in a life insurance policy. So if she wants to come up with a plan to kind of take me out as long as she doesn't get incarcerated, it's a win-win. She becomes really rich and I become richer in heaven. We all win. Don't worry, there's no plan by my wife to do that. I don't want anybody to be concerned for her. But do you understand like how freeing it is? How freeing is it to be in a conversation with you and not be thinking about what do you think about me? Like right now as a pastor, like what do you think about me? What do you, what do you like about what I'm saying or not saying? How do you receive me? Am I talking too fast? Am I talking too slow? Did I wear the right clothes today? Am I saying the right things? Am I, am I profound enough? Am I simple enough? Am I, well, how am I? Pre- I don't really care. I want to honor the Lord. I want to serve you. I certainly love you. I certainly pray for you. But to be free, to be free. From possessions and people is to be truly free in Christ. And so many of you are still enslaved to possessions or people. And I'm saying come to Christ and find forgiveness and hope. The significance here is then to come to the third and final question. Am I willing to suffer for Christ? Am I willing to suffer for Christ? The the first question Am I surrendered to Christ? Second question, am I sold out to Christ? The third one is, am I willing to suffer for Christ? 
He's got this concluding transition with an important observation I want you to make. Look at verse 16. He says, as for all who walk by this rule, it's a qualified statement, not just some general blank check of peace and mercy, a common end of his writings. He says, as for all who walk by this rule, what rule? Faith alone and Christ alone. The, word, the Greek word here for rule is known as kanon. It's this word, we get canon, a, a standard, a measurement of rule. In fact, we even talk about the Bible, like what's in the canon, what's not? What's in the Bible, what's not? How do you know it's biblical versus not? That's a, a term that's used even to reference a larger scripture. What he's talking about here is this rule of measuring what is true, what is right. He's referring to justification by faith, declared right by God through faith alone. And under this idea of what he said earlier in verse 15 of being a new creation, new person, literally new desires, new affections, new emotions, I am a new person. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, we read it already. I have been crucified with Christ. It's not just a 2.0 version like you're somehow like the next software update. You literally are a different person. I mean, same name, of course, same address, of course, but totally different heart. And he says, for those who live like this, who walk by this rule, peace and mercy. He's, he's really sort of laying out the conditional blessing at the end of the letter here with the conditional curse. Well, I said what I said. Go back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Galatians 1, verse 6. Look at what he says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel, a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Again, verse 9, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So he's talking in verses 69 about being cursed, and he's talking in, in, in chapter 6 about peace and mercy. What's the difference? Conditional blessing, conditional consequence, it's based upon who lives by faith alone in Christ. That's exactly what he's saying here. He says at the very end of verse 16, this Israel of God, a lot of ink has been spilt on this one phrase. It's nowhere else used in the New Testament. Some have said it's just Israelites. Some have said it's Israelites and non-Israelites, or rather non-Israelites. And I think in the context of the text, again, that's how we understand the Bible, to put the text in its context, the key question in the book of Galatians is whether one must become a Jew and be circumcised to belong to the people of God. Paul has argued throughout this letter that circumcision is unnecessary. And those who put their faith in Christ alone belong to the family of Abraham when he speaks about the true Israel of God. He's rehearsing a major theme here. All believers, ethnically Jewish or not, who are in Christ by faith are the true Israel of God. Why do I say this question about am I willing to suffer for Christ? Because look at verse 17. He says it kind of crazy. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. He's like, you want to talk about bearing marks in your body? Let's not talk about circumcision. Let's talk about persecution. He's like, if I was interested in pleasing people, which is what he's accused of earlier in chapter 1 and 2, I wouldn't have these marks. Imagine Paul being able to lift his shirt and show you the scars. Like, how do you get these scars? Well, from a lot of reasons, one of which is in Acts chapter 14, verse 18. 
It describes how these people chased him from town to town, finally caught up to him, convinced the crowd. And what they did was they basically captured him, held him down, and stoned him with rocks, believing they'd killed him, having crushed him, broken his bones. And they drag his body out of town, presuming him to be dead. He gets up, walks back into town. He's like, okay, where was I? Paul's like, don't talk to me about having marks of following God. I got marks of following God. You can see literally in my body. Why does he say this? Because he's saying, listen, I'm all in on Jesus alone. And it's cost me everything, but I've gained everything. If you feel like you're a fool for Christ in Miami, Paul says, welcome to the family. You're in good company. And Jesus is at our head as the head of the church, marching in front of us. Friend, what a joy that is. He says at the very end, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone because of his grace alone is the only hope you have for forgiveness of your sins and hope of eternal life. Some of you need to hear this for the first time this morning and give your life to Christ. Repenting of your sins and putting your faith in him. And if you want to talk to somebody about that, talk to the Christian family member or friend who maybe brought you. Find one of the pastors or other people here who are leaders. Go to the Welcome Center. We'd be glad to talk to you about that and pray with you and talk to the scriptures with that. Others of you who are in Christ but are not yet committed to a local church, friend, I would plead with you sincerely does not have to be Grace Church. It could be any other faithful local church in the city of Miami that's preaching the gospel, going to disciple you in the maturity in Christ, commit to a church, and stop living in the world as a wayward Israelite, not wanting to identify with the tribe of Israel, which is an allegory, so don't accuse me of bad theology. And for those of you who are in Christ and a part of the body of Christ, here or otherwise, some other place, you might be visiting from out of town. Welcome, glad to have you here. Get community around you that says, honestly, I'm struggling because like the Israelites of old, I want God as my provider and yet I want Baal as my pleasure. And I need to give up these false idols that are in my tent. I need some accountability, I need some care and so can someone please help me? Be in community groups, be with each other in your time with one another to live that out responsibly and biblically. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.